Hey, welcome uh, to our um, to our worship environment here at GPC, and our worship environment includes singing, includes giving, and includes connecting to one another. It also includes teaching uh, from God's Word, and, and so that's about what we're to engage in now. And the way we do that here is that we go through seasons or series of teachings, and the, the teaching series we're in now is called These Words. You'll see that image up here. The idea behind these ser- this series is simply this, that... Um, there are certain words, if you will, or certain teachings of Jesus that have been given to us to, to help us build, if you will, the kind of life that we want to build. We have a home over here, the facade of a house here to represent for us all that we try to build in life, and that is whether it be security, comfort, um, whatever it might be for us, the, the facade that is out on the front, we all try to build something in our lives. And the, the idea behind this series is simply this, that... To, to reach your greatest fulfillment, okay, to, to find the place in life where, you, where you, find, you find the greatest fulfillment is found in actually following Jesus. Now, it sounds simple to some of you who've been in church for a long time, but for some of us, we disconnect so quickly from that statement because here's what we think. We think following Jesus means following the flannel graph figures that I had in Sunday school when I grew up. It means maybe following the nice ideal, it might, might mean following an idea or a teacher perhaps, but what I'm, what I'm telling you is that following Jesus actually means following the God-man who is actually present in the flesh who taught us, who lived for us, incredible, incredible courage, incredible valor, incredible vision and leadership, incredible humility and service. And following this God-man in his teachings, in his life, is what will bring to you the greatest fulfillment, I believe. Because Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I've come that they may have life and have it abundant. Now here's what we know. We're in this series in Matthew 5 to 7. At the end of chapter 7, there's this little, um, there's this little language, and it goes like this. Um, we sang this song last week, okay? We sang a song, a Sunday school song last week together, and we sang the song of the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm, right? And then we sang that the foolish man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the sand... went splat. I don't know what it went. It went splat. It, it crashed. And so we all, it, we all have heard that song together, and many of you have, have sung that for a long time. And so what we know is this, that, that hearing the words is not enough, that, that hearing the words, people build homes just based on what they hear and what they think. And, and Jesus is telling us, people who build their house on the sand hear the same things that the people who build their house on the rock hear. So it doesn't matter, in in a sense, what you hear. It only matters, and Jesus says it matters what you do with what you hear, right? The only difference between the rock people and the sand people, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 7, is that the rock people, they do something. They put it into practice. Okay? Now, if you're, if you're anything like the rock people, uh, here's what you want to do. You want to know, you want to know then, how do I do, how do I do what Jesus wants me to do? How do I do that? How do I know what Jesus wants me to do? And it sounds great in theory, right? Let's just all do what Jesus wants. Okay, great. 
That's easy. But what about, what about the gray areas of life? Okay, think, think with me on this. What do you do? What do you do in the gray areas? What does it mean? Think about this. What is, what is beauty for a follower of Jesus? What does a beautiful follower of Jesus look like? What do they wear? How much makeup are they allowed to put on? How short or long should their skirt be? What kind, of, what kind of music, by the way, does a follower of Jesus listen to? What kind of, what kind of person does a follower of Jesus marry? How godly should they be? How should they look? If you're a businessman or businesswoman and you're, you're a follower of Jesus, how do, you, how do you build your business as a follower of Jesus? How much risk do you assume for the future of your company and organization, knowing that you have employees dependent upon you? That it's not just you anymore, but it's the future, if you will, of people who work for you that you're playing with as you're figuring out whether we expand or push forward or move in this area or not. What does it mean, then, to follow Jesus there? There's so many gray areas of life, aren't they? So here's what we do. Here's our tendency as people, is we tend to try to take the mysteriousness out of it, take the gray areas out of it, and put it down, if you will, like a dress code. Let's think about a dress code as a great metaphor for a moment. If you've ever been in school, which most of you have been, right, there's a dress code at school, right? It makes it very simple, kind of, for administrators to enforce it. So some of you are in school now, and you hate the dress code or you love the dress code, but the dress code is this attempt to take what's mysterious and make it very black and white. They try to be as clear as possible, meaning shorts have to be, what, down to your fingertips, or if you go to a different school, no shorts at all, right? You just can't wear shorts. Or, you know, shirts have to be, when I went to college, shirts, I think we had to have a collared shirt where I went to college. Some of you are like, man, what's wrong with your college? I don't know. That was their deal. You had to have a collared shirt. The seminary that I went to the first year, I had to wear a coat and tie. And then the second year, Chuck Swindoll came in and he's like, what in the world are you guys doing to these four students? Give them a break. They don't have to wear a coat and tie. So dress codes change. But here's what dress codes do. They attempt to take a mysterious gray area and that is the area of modesty or professionalism. They try to take the gray stuff and make it very, very black and white, right? We've all experienced that. We've all kind of rebelled against dress code at some point in our lives. But here's the deal. There is also a cultural code that is just like a dress code, but it's a cultural code that tries to take what's mysterious, and that is this general concept of morality or faith, and tries to then take the mysteriousness out and apply very specific rules to people in a culture not unlike this, to say, to say this, if you really want to do the things of God, here's what, you, here's what you listen to. If you really want to do the things of God, here's how you dress here. If you really want to do, if you really, really, really want to do the right things, here's the movies that you don't watch. Here's what you do with alcohol. Here's what you do with divorce. Here's what you do with remarriage. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. And it's all in this great attempt to do, right? To build our house on the rock. To do, not just here, but to do what Jesus wants us to do. 
And so there's this desire within us as people who are generally achievers. We want to do the right thing. But the temptation is always to come in and to apply a set of rules and regulations to help us know what in the world am I supposed to do? Someone please tell me. Give me a dress code. Give me a cultural code. And what will happen is this, that we will either come to accept that cultural code and just fit in to a church environment, if you will, or, or we will come to the point where we feel like, I can't hack it here. People are judging me because my choice to listen to a different kind of music doesn't jive with the cultural code here. My choice to use different language on Facebook doesn't jive with the cultural code here. My choice to go to this kind of movie doesn't jive with the cultural code here, so I'm going to reject it, and it's going to reject me, and then I'm going to leave and find another place where I can connect with the cultural code. So what in the world does it look like for people who want to do the right thing, who want to follow Jesus, how do we do that without adding rule upon rule upon rule upon rule to our lives? This is the place Jesus is in his address to all the people who are gathered around him on the mount in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. These words now of Jesus are the words that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where he's going to address this issue of righteousness and where does it come from. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. There's one near you. In the pew around you, we have two different kinds. One is a little older, one is newer. In the old Bible, it's page 936. In the new Bible, it's page 786. 936 or 786. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible that you're holding now from the pew is our gift to you. Take that home with you and read it and find the life of God within those pages, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. What in the world are we supposed to do about following Jesus? Because we all want to follow him. We want to do the right things, but we don't want to apply a dress code, so to speak, to our following of Jesus. So what do we do? Matthew 5, verses 17 and 20. Verse 17, Jesus begins, he says, uh, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let's take time out on verse 17. Very interesting where Jesus starts, because here's what's happening. There is a reputation that Jesus has now, and the reputation is this man is teaching something different. In fact, it's so different from what we're used to, it's new, brand new. He's not even teaching the law and the prophets anymore. This is very, this is very important to get because the, the people who are, the, the Jewish leaders at this time had taken, for example, the Ten Commandments and had extrapolated out, some of you know this, they'd extrapolated out from the Ten Commandments 613 rules to follow. 365 of them were negative. 248 were positive. So hey, every day of, of the year, if you're a negative kind of person, you would love this. Every day of the year, you can have a calendar with one of the negative things not to do if you grew up at this time. They had 365 of them. You could just, what can I look at that's bad today? Great, I can't do that. Wonderful. What can I do tomorrow? I can't do that either. This is what the Pharisees did. So Jesus comes, and he's 
He's teaching something that is challenging this dress code, this cultural code, and saying this is wrong what you're doing. But the people who lived under the teaching of the Pharisees, this is all they knew, right? This is all they knew about God. And so Jesus comes, and because it's so different, because Jesus is challenging the cultural code of how I relate to God, what they're saying is, man, he must be creating something brand new. And Jesus is coming saying, no, I'm not giving you something brand new. I am challenging your cultural code, but I am telling you I am not here to get rid of what you have misinterpreted. I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. So they're thinking, wow, what he's saying is so different. And he's saying, it's different because you got it wrong. You've applied so much of your man-made stuff on top of this, well-intentioned, you want to honor God. But you're off. So I'm giving you the truth, and you think I'm coming to destroy your faith. I'm not. I'm here to tell you who God is. So, so don't think, he says, that I've come to destroy or abolish the law. I haven't done that. I'm here to fulfill it. Which, by the way, paints a big target on his chest. You ever seen that Far Side cartoon? Uh-huh. Some of you all know that already. That Far Side, far side where you have two, is a deer or maybe two bear in the woods, and one looks at the other, and the other has a target on his chest, and he says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Right. Like, yeah, and that's kind of the idea. Jesus is now putting that target. He said, I have come to fulfill the law, which in other words is saying, I'm the Messiah, which is exactly what will get you killed if you live at this time. Okay, verse 18, he goes on and says, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which is great. This resonates. This resonates with the people. Okay, you're telling me that we really have to watch all the little stuff that we do, right? Yeah. You have to be careful about holiness. Yeah. We have to watch all this. I mean, follow the law and the prophets. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Well, isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that what righteousness is? Jesus goes on to say this. For I tell you, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For, for unless your righteousness surpasses that, the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what I'd like you to do with me. Grab your Bible or your friend's Bible if they're not holding it. And if, you have a, if you're reading the Bible on your phone or your iPad, um, grab the pew Bible because you need the tangible piece to, to do this, okay? Um, keep your finger in, Genesis, or in Matthew uh, 5 where you are and flip over to Genesis 1, very beginning of the Bible, okay? Genesis 1, and then with your finger or your thumb there, uh, just roll over and find, keeping Genesis 1 in place there, find Deuteronomy 34, the very end of Deuteronomy, okay? So you should end up with several pages that you are holding in between your thumb and first finger there, okay? Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34. 
Deuteronomy is five books after um, Genesis. Go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay. Got that now. Kind of, kind of. Hold that in your hands from Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34. You got that in there? Now, what I want you to do is slowly flip through the pages. It might be easier to go backwards from Deuteronomy to Genesis the way your Bible folds open. But slowly just kind of flip through all those pages and see how many words are on those pages. And as you do that, I want you to imagine this. If your righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees, you need to start by memorizing all that you're flipping through right now. This is what the Pharisees do. Memorize the Pentateuch. I'm not talking about a verse. I'm not talking about even a chapter, which is really impressive. I'm talking about all that that you see between your fingers. This is where you start to think about being a good Pharisee. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, who just kind of start at the entry level, memorizing all of that. Can you imagine that? Imagine that assignment in your class. Hey guys, this year we're going to memorize all of that, including all those funky laws about not wearing fabrics of two different, or claws of two different fabrics, and the laws about eating and all that stuff. Memorizing. What do you think the people are thinking who are sitting there? Are you, are you kidding? How is this possible? The Pharisee, this is their full-time job to be Pharisees. I'm a fisherman. I'm a carpenter. I'm a homemaker. And their job is to be a Pharisee. And you're telling me, unless my righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, I'm not going to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. What is he saying? And how would you react to that? The Pharisees were well-respected. They gave to the poor consistently. Some of them actually were um, really strange guys. They would actually, imagine this now, going down, walking down the road, rather than be tempted to look at a woman lustfully, they would actually walk into walls, truly, and bruise themselves rather than to look at a woman. Kind of funny, imagine that. And be, boom, you're just kind of walking around. It's like these guys don't have a, a sense of sight or anything like that. This is what they do. Highly, highly committed people to doing what's right. And Jesus, I mean, you can imagine. Think of the most, most um, highly religious person you have ever conceived of. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying? What is he saying? Here's what I believe he's saying. And this you're going to have to trust me on a little bit um, because the evidence for this is coming in the, the consecutive weeks that we have in this series. The evidence for what Jesus is going to say is going to come through the end of chapter 5. Okay, verse 20, standing alone, we don't really know what he means. The verses that follow that we are going to cover the next several weeks together are going to flesh this out. So I'm going to tell you now the big picture of what he's talking about. And one commentator put it this way, and check out what he says. R.T. France wrote this, and he said, To speak of a righteousness which goes far beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees might therefore seem to be an impossible, even ridiculous idea. Right? I mean, who's going to memorize more than the Pentateuch? How about we get the whole Bible? Would that, would that work? Okay, who's, who's, who's ever going to do that? So this, this whole teaching concept is ridiculous. 
As long as righteousness is understood in terms of literal obedience to rules and regulations, it would be hard to find anyone who attempted it more rigorously and more consistently than the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, these guys are at the top of their game. Like I mentioned last week, think of a football player. Think of midget football, peewee football, and telling your little, I don't know, eight-year-old, unless you're better than Tom Brady, don't come out for the team. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. And this is what Jesus is suggesting. It's impossible. The paradox of Jesus' demand here makes sense only if their basic premise as to what righteousness consists of is put in question. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. That Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game, but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. He is not talking about doing more memorization. He is not talking about coming up with 615 laws. He is not talking about that. And and here's what he's talking about. He is talking not about going farther in the law, but he's talking about going deeper. Here's the basic message. Go deeper, not farther. Here's what we mean by that. The Pharisees would take a law, and they would see a law in the Scriptures, and then they would take it and, and put a, um, a rule against that, and a rule here, 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 and go far down the line to try to keep people from avoiding this issue over here. And this is what we experience, isn't it, sometimes? Well, why can't I do that? Why can't I wear that? Why can't I go there on Sunday? Why can't I go do this thing? Why, why do I have to do that? Well, because that's what we do. What? What Jesus is getting at is the game. The game is not go further from the law. The rule is that the game is go deeper to the heart of the issue. The the goal is not to create people who are really good at following the rules of morality. The goal is to find people who are really good at knowing the heart of the king If you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, we don't need people who who simply please the king. We need people who love the king, whose heart is attuned to the king, not whose brain is wrapped up in simply following the rules of the kingdom. France goes on to write something like this. He says this, those who can do no more than simply keep the rules, however conscientiously, haven't even started as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. Those who, who simply can keep the rules of the cultural code, okay, those who can follow the dress code, have not even begun, have not even begun to imagine the kingdom of heaven. And here is the danger of this, guys, for you and for me. The danger of this is to think that because I fit into a culture, because I fit into this cultural code here, I fit into the kingdom of heaven. And every, 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 every culture has its problems that detract us and pull us from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is this realization, the fact that I am in a right now, a spiritual kingdom where God is my king. And I think about the world completely, completely differently. And here's the the challenge, is to separate and pull this cultural code that we have away from following the kingdom of heaven. 
But here's what Jesus is saying. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, go deeper to the heart rather than farther in behavior. Now, let's talk about what that would look like. Let's talk about that. Think about it this way. Two questions that we can ask to help flesh this out a little bit. Number one, people who are committed to following the rules, people who are committed to rules and regulations and religious achievement are going to ask this question up here. How do I please my king? Now, if you were to see this question before I were even to comment on it, this would seem like a good question, right? How do I please my king? Seems like a good question. But people who are, who are focused on pleasing the king are simply focused on the rules and regs. How do I please him? Check out the difference, a subtle but very significant difference on this question. How do I love my king? How do I love my king? Do you see the subtle nuance? Do you see the subtle difference? It's not just how do I please him and do the right things and go farther, but how do I love him and go deeper? It's not how do I follow the dress code to a T, but it's how do I even understand why he wants a dress code in the first place? Think about this at home. The person who wants to please the king is concerned primarily with, okay, what does God require of me to be a good husband, let's say, or a good father, okay? Um, shouldn't get a divorce, okay, check. Um, shouldn't exasperate the children, mm, uncheck. <laughs> um, and probably should not curse in the home. That privately is another issue, but okay, what are the basic things I need to do? There we go. The person who asks, how do I love my king? says not just what do I need to do, not how do I please him, but how do I love him. So why is it, why is it that the king would be against divorce in this case? Because he wants a relationship with husband and wife to be so um, open and transparent that forgiveness and grace are extended regularly and that that relationship is an extension of his gospel message to the world. That's what you get when you see what it means to love the king. Think about it um, at school. How do, I, how do I please the king at school? Okay, well, at school, there's kids who are rude and mean and kids who say bad words and kids who dress inappropriately and kids who um, bully other kids. So what does it mean to please the king? Well, what that means is that I should, generally speaking, avoid that because I'm to be moral and, and good. And so I'm not going to get involved in that, and I'm going to get involved in the good things. Good starting point, maybe. The deeper question is, how do I love my king? And what if my king has come to seek and to save all who are lost? What if my king has reached into the lives of people whom others have rejected? And what if I begin to ask the question, how do I love my king at school? Not just how do I please him at school. And what about if in, in work? If I not only ask the question, how do I please my king? Because I know if I'm a Bible person at all, I know to please him, I show up on time. Hey, I'm even early uh, and I don't cheat on my time clock. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm just faithful in what I do. Great, you're pleasing him. Wonderful. Now, have you ever thought, how do I love him at work? How do I love him? 
What does he want from me in my interactions and entering the lives of my employer and my fellow employees? How do I find out how in the world I can help support and build relationships with people who are near me? Because not just because I'm pleasing my king, but because I love him. I love him. There is a drastic, significant difference between loving and pleasing. Thursday night, I went over to the factory um, ministries, the, the new um, Paradise Elementary, the new old Paradise Elementary that we help renovate. A very good experience. Um, you should, if you've never been there yet, um, might be a good thing to make time to do it. I was telling Chuck, the director there, um, it's not unlike when you, um, you have small children in the home. And some of you have been there where you're, you're driving in the car for a really long time and you have a small car at the time and the kids are just on top of each other in the back seat. And, and after a while you're like, we need a, a minivan, right? Or you, well, I need more room. Why? Because so they don't like kill each other and so I don't get so stressed out. So you get more room and all your world is, is good. In a way, that's kind of what's happening at the factory. They have a bigger building, more space, more area, and, and there's not nearly as much drama right now. So I go over there, and what I do Thursday night is I interview six students at Pequot Valley High School right now. And, and one of the questions that I ask them is this. Tell me from your perception, what is um, a major problem within the church today? Okay, wide open question. What, what do you think? Um, I interviewed six people. Um, two of them were guys, four of them were girls. Uh, two guys were, were good, good, good interviews. But the four girls... Independent of one another. Before I could, almost before I could get the words out of my mouth. Okay, here's what they said. And this is current data coming from them. This is really the only question that they responded to just like that. Like they had this on the tip of their tongue. Too judgmental. All four girls. That the same words. Too judgmental is the church. And they carried that out. If I were to go there with the new tattoo I'm getting next week, I would be judged. If I were to go there with these earrings, they would judge me. If I were to go there, whatever. Now, some of that's not fair, okay? But some of it is. And here's what happens when you create a culture where people agree silently, we agree, let's all please the king. Let's just all make up the rules that we think this culture should value. Let's just please the king. And then what happens is people come into this culture and if they're not pleasing the king the way that we think they should be pleasing the king, they feel judged. But if we were to ask the question, imagine if we were to ask the question, how do we love the king? Not how do we please the king, but how do I love the king? What a difference that would make to go deeper, not farther. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like for these girls to say, you know, I've been in a place where they just love me. I don't know why they love God the way they do, but they do. They love their king. And this is what Jesus is saying. Unless your righteousness surpasses, not going farther, not rule upon rule upon rule upon rule upon rule, unless your righteousness goes deeper, you begin to love your king 
You won't even start as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. But once you do start, imagine, imagine what could happen. This is the righteousness that Jesus gave his life for. This is the kind of righteousness that he was willing to draw that mark on his chest and be crucified for. And one of the things we get to do as a church um, is every now and then we get to celebrate in worship and remember together the act of Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of the values of communion, as we call it here, um, is that we get to, to bring into our very tangible lives this reminder that God is real. That we worship not an idea, but we worship a God-man. That we will, in a moment, when we pass out the elements together, the bread and the cup, and we eat and drink together, we will touch with our fingers. We will taste with our taste buds. We will smell. We will experience a real event of eating bread and juice that's symbolic of Jesus' broken body on our behalf. And so as we eat and drink today, here's what I'd love us to think about. As you are getting the bread, as you're getting the cup, I'd love for you to think about this. How do I love my king? How do I love my king who died for me? Not how do I please him. We're, we're all good at that, okay? We're all, not, not that. That'll come. But first of all, go deeper. How do I love him? How do I love him in the relationships that I have? How do I love him? At this point, I invite the worship team and our ushers to come to the front who are going to get ready to help us with communion. And as they come, we've, um, I'll tell you this about communion. Regardless of your church affiliation, your membership or anything like that, we invite you to participate with us, to share in communion with us. If you are someone who said at some point in your life, I believe in Jesus, I I follow him, um, or I'm following him, attempting that journey with us, you're welcome to the table with us, okay? You're welcome. You don't need to be a member of our church, but if you are a follower of Jesus, we, we welcome you to participate in this event together. The way we do it here is we, we distribute the bread, the, the bread that we have, and then um, we hold the bread until everyone has been served, come back to the front, and then I'll give instructions to eat together, and then we'll do the same thing for the cup. Um, so in order to kind of prepare our minds and hearts for that, I've asked Pastor Joel if he'd come and lead us in a prayer for the bread. Our Father, this morning we have been challenged to go deeper. And Lord, as we think about your incredible sacrifice of your body, that which the bread would represent this morning, my heart is challenged. even think of this week and images that have come up before my eyes of broken bodies that endured incredible pain and death. I'm amazed at how you would love me, that you would love us so much that you would be willing to say, 
I will sacrifice my body for these folks. I would be willing to sacrifice my body for them. And this morning, Lord, I'm humbled by that. And my heart is full of thankfulness and gratitude that you're willing to lay down your life and to be willing to be beaten, to suffer, to be pierced. What love drove you for that? And Lord, we thank you so much for being willing to even die for us.